0: Uh, I want to welcome you to week five, to our series from the book of Acts. Um, Really excited about this one. I got a lot to go over, so I want to get right into it and read the passage we're going to be spending some time in this evening. That's Acts chapter four, verses 23 through 32. It says this, after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father, David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing, signs, and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. Verse 32. Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. This is God's word. So one of the main reasons that I wanted to go back through the book of Acts is... um, is because the the capital C church, not just us, but everywhere, is uh, you're you're not unaware of this experiencing a profound amount of change, probably more change now than than maybe I'll ever see again in my lifetime. And so with that, uh, it just felt impressed upon me that we needed to be reminded of what it really means to be a Christian. And there's really no, no, no book in the Bible that can do that for us better than the book of Acts, because Acts is all about the origins of Christianity. And when you go back to the origins, you get a, a crystal clear picture of what authentic Christianity is. And that's an incredibly important thing to get a grip on. Uh, the reason I say that is because a lot of people in this world, and maybe this is where some of you are coming from, a lot of people in this world will say that they used to be a Christian, but they're not anymore. Like it was a shirt that they tried on and it didn't quite fit, and so they took it off and, and set it aside. And then, of course, for, for most of the people listening to this right now, I'm, I'm sure that you would say that you are a Christian, that you would base your entire self understanding and identity on the fact that you're a Christian. But my question is how do you know? How do you know if you ever were a Christian, and how do you know if you really are one now? And that's the kind of question that if you ask yourself that every moment of your life, you'll drive yourself insane, and that's not healthy, because there comes a time when you just need to kind of trust God with what he said is true about you in his word. But if you never ask yourself that question, I don't think that's healthy either. And so what I want to do during our time together this evening is take that question into this passage, uh, because in this passage, what we see is four marks of real Christianity. And those are going to serve as the four ideas of tonight's teaching. And I I would just ask, this is what I've been doing all week, as we roll through these four ideas, to just be willing to take a self-inventory and to look into your own life and into your own heart and ask yourself if what we see here is what you see in your own heart. And so with that, I want to get to what's going to be our first idea this evening. It's that number one, real Christianity is marked by serving God consistently. Let me say that one more time. Real Christianity is marked by, number one, serving God consistently. Acts chapter 4 begins a, a marked uh, turning point for the people of God. Because prior to this, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, really everything has been, I'll put it this way, it's been really fun to be a part of the church. Uh, In Acts chapters 1, 2, and 3, everybody outside the church looks on the Christians with favor. Uh, Every time Peter opens his mouth, another several thousand people give their life to Jesus. And so prior to this moment, uh, it's been fun and they've been doing nothing but winning. Uh, But here in verse 23, the very first verse in this passage, what we read is after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So between the space of what we covered last week and where we're at right now, in the beginning of chapter four, what you'll read is that Peter and John got arrested and they had their lives threatened and they were commanded not to preach Christianity anymore. And so what's happening right here is that in chapter four, Christians begin to realize that some of them are gonna die. That is the first time that this thought has really begun to enter their mind. And so this is the first time that we see the very first followers of Jesus really experiencing suffering. And it's their response to suffering that shows us one of the greatest pieces of evidence that you have a legitimate relationship with God. All right, The, the, um, the book of Job is a, a, a story that I don't think a lot of people make a point to spend a lot of time in. Uh, it's the story of a man who loses just about everything. He loses his, his money, he loses his family, he loses his health, he, he just about loses his mind. And all throughout the book, basically about 90% of the book is just Job uh, yelling and crying out and asking why and basically arguing his case with God uh, that he had to experience all the things that he had to experience. And if you read through the book of Job in one sitting, then you'll get, you'll get the feeling that Job's not handling this very well that he's not doing this in a way that honors God. But once you get to the end of the book, it has a bit of a surprise ending because what happens at the end is God shows up and actually vindicates Job. And he affirms Job and he rewards him to the point that he's more blessed in the latter half of his life than the former. And then the flip side of that coin is that God actually rebukes Job's friends for criticizing him and for insinuating that he wasn't processing his pain correctly or that he'd done anything to deserve it. And so it, it's, a, it's a confusing book on its face, but the way to understand Job is to go back to the beginning of the book and you see this conversation between God and Satan. And at the front end of Job, what, what, uh, what God does is he says, "Have you seen my servant Job? There's nobody like him in all the earth." And in response to God's comments on Job, Satan responds, and, and he actually accuses Job, and he asks the question. He says, "Does God serve you for nothing?" And what Job is doing is he's basically saying to God, he's saying, the reason Job serves you is because it's paid off for him. He's had a lot of great benefits at a very low cost. But, but Satan's point is that Job is not a servant, he's a consumer. And so he's not, really, he, he's not really serving God so much as he's serving himself and using God. And so what Satan says to God on the front end of Job is essentially, if you let me cause enough suffering in his life, I'll show you who he really is. And so the book of Job is basically, predominantly, it's Job's response to all the hardship and all the suffering that God allowed to happen in his life. But the reason that at the end of the book of Job, despite all of Job's ranting and his raving and his calling out and his yelling and his arguing his case, despite the fact that God still vindicates him in spite of all that, is because all during the book of Job, Job is is ranting and raving, but he's doing so before God. Job might be, you know, kind of losing his mind, but he's losing his mind toward God. In other words, what that means is that all the suffering that he experienced didn't drive him away from God. It, it, it actually intensified his prayer life and therefore drove him even closer to God than he was before. And, and so although, as the book of Job kind of shows, although Satan was wrong about Job specifically that he really was a servant of God he was not just a consumer what satan was 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 right about is the fact that true servants of God serve God for nothing other than God himself not for what they get out of the relationship and so really the premise that the entire book of job is 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 written upon is the reality that nothing uh, suf- suffering like nothing else that we experience in this life, will reveal to you and I whether or not we got into our relationship with God to get him to serve us or out of a genuine desire to serve him. And so in a sense, you can't even necessarily really know that you're a Christian until you've suffered. You can be a Christian until you've suffered, but until you've been through that, you can't really know that yourself. And so with this idea in mind, I want to I pivot back here to Acts chapter 4 and, and see these the people of God. So they know in Acts four, for the first time in their lives, that some of them are gonna die for the sake of obedience to Jesus. But in response, they do the same exact thing that Job does all throughout the book of Job. Luke tells us they raise their voices to God in prayer, which which already in and of itself is moving to me. When I think about all the ways that I've responded to prayer throughout my life. But what's a whole lot more challenging to me, maybe inspirational to me or some other word, is what these people pray for in Acts chapter 4, because it's none of the stuff that you and I would pray for. What you'll find in this prayer is they do not ask for a change in their circumstances, they don't ask for protection in the midst of their circumstances. And they don't even pray for vengeance on the people who are the cause of their circumstances. What they pray for is recorded for us in verses 29 and 30, which says this, And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness while you stretch out your hand for healings, signs, and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And if I can just paraphrase that prayer, what this is, This is the earliest Christians essentially saying, God, just give us the courage to keep obeying you so that you can keep transforming lives through us. Now, in saying this, I want to make this real clear. There is, biblically speaking, there is absolutely nothing wrong with with praying for your needs. I mean, Jesus even included in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. So so Jesus himself said that it's a good thing to enter into the presence of God in prayer and present your needs to God. But that's not the focal point of this prayer. And in this case, the followers of Jesus don't even go there because your needs are not the primary thing that you're after in your relationship with God if you truly are a Christian. And so what this passage shows us is, is therefore, you can't really be sure that you are a Christian if your life is going okay. And whether or not we like this or not, and I don't like this, so I'm guessing that you don't either, we actually need our lives to go in and out of okay. We actually need to go from the mountain to the valley. And it's only if throughout the ebbs and flows of life, and the peaks and the mountains and the darkest valleys of life, that there's a consistent desire to serve our Creator, that we can then know that we legitimately do have a relationship with God. So first off, real Christianity is marked by, on the one hand, serving God consistently. The second idea I I see in this passage is is that number two, real Christianity is marked by knowing God deliberately. Number two, real Christianity is marked by knowing God deliberately. I'm sure that you've probably heard this before, but, but to know about God is one thing. Scripture tells us that demons know all about God. They have a better grasp about who God is than you and I will on this side of eternity. But, but to know God, to actually know God, is to be a real Christian. And knowing God, when we talk about knowing God, what that means, it, it, at least two things. It means that what you have with God is personal and that what you have with God is, a, is an actual relationship. So let me walk to, through these, these two ideas. First and foremost, uh, this shows us that, that what, we, what we have with God What you and I have to have with God needs to be on the one hand personal. All right, in our culture, which you'll hear a lot of people, maybe you've heard this term before, but a lot of sociologists and even, you know, Christian missiologists have started to refer to our culture as a post-Christian culture, which is the first time that we've experienced that as a country. And so with that, whether you've heard that term or not, what's becoming a lot more common is is something that you'll hear uh, as deconversion stories. Deconversion stories in which people who were raised in the church, and I'm sure you probably know a handful of people like this, people who were raised in the church, maybe even raised in Christian families, uh, and, and really do genuinely believe that they're a Christian and profess that they're a Christian, they move out into life, they get out into college or they get out into the work world and their faith completely dissolves. They lose interest in it altogether and they never return to it again. Time after time this happens. If, I don't know if you were here with us a couple of weeks back, but I opened up kind of a, about um, you know, how God got a hold of my life. And I shared with you that, that God used an atheist to preach me the sermon that changed my life. He was a guy named, named Chris that, that I was friends with when I was 19 years old. And, and his story was a lot like what I'm, what I'm sharing with you now. Uh, that, that he told me he was raised in the church. And, uh, and his parents kind of led him to do that, and he went to youth group, and he went to these conferences, and he told me that he, had, you know, he would cry over his faith, and he had all these you know, emotional encounters in the presence of God, and he had what a lot of people would point to in his life and say, okay, that's what Christianity looks like. That's what a genuine encounter with God looks like. Yet by the time that our paths crossed, he was unwilling to even entertain the idea that A, God existed at all. He was a professing atheist. That's a deconversion story. And so the, the, the question is, was, is, what happens there? And, and, and here's what happens there. Uh, here's how you explain that. It is entirely possible to have a second-hand encounter with God, where you're basically living off of somebody else's enthusiasm. And that's not Christianity. That's just a, a spiritualized version of peer pressure. And what, what the, the, the root cause there, the underlying issue there, is for that individual, they never met God themselves. And what they had with God was never personal. And so first and foremost, what we have with God needs to be personal. But secondly, what we need to have with God, it, it has to actually be a relationship. And a relationship with God, like any other functioning relationship in our lives, needs to be marked by two-way communication. All right, I, I recently heard, this, this surprised me, maybe you'll find this interesting, but I, I recently heard that, uh, that uh, surveys have demonstrated that something like 80% of Americans will say that they pray and that they pray regularly. And when asked the content of their prayers, what they pray about, it's just about their needs. And so their prayer life is essentially just, you know, I need this, I need this, I hope this doesn't happen, save me from this, bail me out of this kind of thing. And, and, and so let me just speak to that real briefly here. If, if, if that's all your relationship with God is marked by, then, then what you do not have is a personal relationship with God. That, that's not any more a personal relationship than the relationship you have with Amazon. Because what you're basically doing is just placing spiritual orders and you've attempted to reduce God to this kind of divine Amazon in the sky. Uh, in uh, Eugene Peterson, in, in a book that he wrote called Answering God, he, he points out something that I, I find you know, really revelatory and really helpful in understanding prayer. He said that prayer is not so much talking to God as it is answering God. And, and I heard it explained this way, that the, the only reason that you know how to speak is because somebody spoke to you first. And it's a biological fact that if all throughout your childhood, if no one had ever spoken a language to you, then you would have never learned how to speak a language yourself. The only way any of us ever learned how to communicate thought is because whether or not we wanted to, we listened for a very long time to people speaking to us first. And slowly and surely over time, we gained the ability and the skill in speaking back. And it's it's the same thing, according to Eugene Peterson, and he's right, it's the same thing When it comes to forging a relationship with God, because God has spoken in his word. That's why we call it his word. And he's revealed everything that we need to know about him in his word. And so when we open our mouths to pray, we should be responding to that. Prayer is basically, it's just hopping into a conversation that God already began long before we got here. And the reason I bring all this up is because that's exactly what we see the apostles doing here in Acts chapter 4. All right, it's, so, so if we can just get here for a moment, what, what's happened in the apostles' lives is probably for the first time uh, since the resurrection, they're, they're legitimately scared. They're afraid. I think a lot of times we have this tendency to kind of you know, dehumanize and, and almost make heroes out of the first followers of Jesus like they weren't full of the same stuff that we are. It's just not the truth. They were afraid in Acts chapter 4. That's why they're praying for boldness. You don't pray for boldness if you already have it. So these people are filled with fear. But but what they do in praying is instead of going right to their fear or right, right to what they think their need is, is they go to scripture. And in their, spray, th- their prayer, all they do is they just pray through Psalm 2. We read about it in verses 25 and 26. It says, you said through, your, through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. All they're doing is directly quoting Psalm chapter 2 and turning it into a prayer. And if you read Psalm chapter 2, that Psalm is all about the fact that even though nations might rage... And even though people might rebel, and, and even though as a, as a servant of God and as a follower of Jesus, you might find yourself in a situation where you feel surrounded and you feel outnumbered and you feel overwhelmed and you feel intimidated that in the midst of that, God has not moved even an inch off of his throne. God never stops being in control of exactly where you are and everything going on around you. And nothing that moves you moves him. That's basically the entire theme of Psalm chapter two. And so what's happening here in Acts is that the apostles are afraid, but they're not saying, God, we're we're really, we're we're afraid and we need you to give us some courage or, or, you know, we have anxiety and we need you to give us peace. What they're doing is something that anybody who desires to see spiritual growth in their own life needs to learn how to do, which is to take something that God's revealed about himself in his word and respond to him on the basis of that and pray it into your own heart until it changes you. And and so in this particular instance, what you have is, is, is apostles, early followers of Jesus who were dealing with fear and anxiety. And I just want to pause here and point out that maybe somebody listening to me right now can relate to that. What you have here is a group of followers of Jesus who are pretty concerned about what tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that is going to look like for them and for their spouses and for their kids and for the people that they care about. They're dealing with more uncertainty than they ever have before. I mean, they have anxiety, and they have a good reason for it. Because as the story of Acts plays out, they were right. They do start dying left and right. And so what they do here in response to all that is they take what God has said about himself and his word, a particular aspect of the nature and character of God that they needed to see, and they needed to be reminded of in their innermost being, and they respond to God on the basis of who he said he is. This is, this is just the apostles getting together and saying, all right, we're going to think about who God is, and we're going to speak to God as he is until it calms us down and makes us fearless. That's what I mean when I say that a relationship is, is two-way. And when you and I enter into a relationship with God that is based on two-way communication, not just us throwing up what we think we need, but responding to what God has said about himself first, it legitimately does transform us in the midst of our circumstances, And and you can see the evidence of this in the verses that follow. Because in verses 27 and 28, we read, For in fact, this is the second half of their prayer. They say, For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. That's them just talking about the crucifixion. In verse, verse 28, though, I think this is interesting. He says, To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined, to take place. So, what you have here is having reset their view of God, having taken as much time as they needed to sit in the presence of God until their, their view of who their Heavenly Father was was reset, now they're, they're resetting the view of their situation and they're, they're reinterpreting what's going on around them through what God has said about Himself. And, and so, essentially, what they're saying is God, the crucifixion was a horrible thing. When Jesus died on that cross and Herod and Pontius Pilate and Gentiles and your own people conspired against the Son of God, that was a horrible thing. That was a terrible thing. But we know now, having seen the resurrection, that if Jesus had not gone to the cross, if that had not been a part of your sovereign plan then we would have never entered into a life-giving relationship with you. And the church would have never been born. And the Spirit of God could have never descended upon us. And the thousands of people who have already been saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, none of that would be possible if not for that horrible thing that was a part of your plan in the life of Jesus. And, And so what they're essentially saying is, now that we know that this is how sovereign you are, and this is how powerful you are, and this is how wise that you are, that you can bring good even out of things that are objectively bad, and you can bring life out of death. And you can bring salvation out of destruction. Now that we know that, God, we're just asking that if those same things that happen to Jesus start happening to us, and we start to die, and terrible things become a part of our life, God, just give us the ability to remember who you are and how you work. And as that truth sank into their lives in the presence of God in prayer, it made them completely fearless to face whatever God had for them tomorrow. This is, this is early church spirituality. This is what the church was built on. This is how it survived the last 2,000 years. And I know I spent a lot of time on this idea. I was most excited about this one, if you can't tell. But the last thing I want to point out about this one is how ironic it is. Because what you're seeing here is that these, these Christians uh, in this prayer, this prayer is so God-centered that they really don't talk about themselves at all. They really don't ask that their needs would be met at all. They really don't bring a grocery list to God at all, and yet they wind up benefiting so greatly, being filled with this this fearless confidence, this boldness that literally would extend past death for them. And what that's meant to show us is that if in our prayers we focus only on our needs, then we're never going to get our needs met. I mean, if we try to reduce a relationship with God to just popping in and letting him know what we think we need, we're never gonna get anything out of prayer. And we're gonna get really nothing out of our relationship with God. But if in our time with God, we focus on who he is instead of our needs, then and only then can our needs be met. It's why C.S. Lewis said, if you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you get neither. It's why the son of God himself said to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things, would be added to you. It's the same principle at work here in Acts 4. So secondly, real Christianity is marked by knowing God deliberately. The third idea I wanted to offer you based on this passage is is number three, real Christianity is marked by, thirdly, experiencing God periodically. Real Christianity is marked by experiencing God periodically. After this prayer in verse 31, we read, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak god's message with boldness and so what you're what you're seeing here is that, in response to them deciding to serve God consistently, that they didn't allow their suffering to drive them away from from a relationship with God, in response to them knowing God deliberately and responding to Him on the basis of who He said He is, what happens is these believers get filled with the spirit and so let me let me ask the question. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? We talked about this a little bit on on, on the second week of this series, but I just wanted to briefly return to that. When Jesus talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit in John 16 and the work that is so necessary that only he can do in our lives, he said that the Spirit essentially would do, among other things, two things in our lives. That the Spirit's role was to glorify Jesus in us and secondly, to take from what is Jesus's, And to declare it to us. And so the work of the Spirit is to take Jesus and everything that he's done for you. And everything that it means for you in in your, in your, 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 your past, your present, and your future. And the Spirit makes it real to the rest of your being. The the, the way I've heard it phrased is that that the the spirit of God takes the gospel from something that you simply understand to something that you stand under. And when God sends his spirit and we experience the fullness of the spirit, what happens is his His power and his sovereignty become so real to us that we can't be afraid anymore. And his love and his forgiveness become so real to us that shame and guilt lose its grip on us entirely. It's just the spirit, the work of the spirit is to make it real so that we live out of what is already true about us. But the fact that Acts, over and over and over again, talks about people being filled with the Spirit over and over, and therefore that means that we need to be filled with the Spirit over and over, what that means for us uh, is that we should never expect on the one hand, I mean because Peter literally has this happen to him twice in chapter 4, what this means for us is that we should not expect as Christians to be on on an emotional high throughout our lives. Uh, I I just think this is a healthy reminder. What makes you a Christian is Jesus' work on your behalf, not what your emotions are doing at at, at any given instant in your life. And even if you don't always feel it, that doesn't mean that it's not objectively true. Uh, And I I think that's really important. I think some of us might really need to hear that because whoever you are listening to this, you might be a person who's not that prone to emotional experiences. Uh, Maybe you're the kind of person that kind of observes other people weeping in, in worship, and, and, you know, they have like this tear-stained journal that every time they spend time with God, it's just, you know, bursting out of their heart and, and you know, producing tears. And, and that's just not how you operate. And if I'm speaking to you right now, that's okay because um, we're saved on the basis of what Jesus has done, not how we feel about it every given moment. But on the other hand what Acts does in showing us the fullness of the Spirit happening over and over in people's lives, throughout their lives, what that should do is, is it shows us what's available, it shows us what's possible, and it should create in us a hunger to have those encounters with God. I, I want to read something to you. For, this is right out of the, um, right out of the um, spiritual diary of, of Jonathan Edwards. I think this is incredible. He said, He said, Once as I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737... For divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love. He said, The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. He said, I have several other times had views very much of the same nature and which have had the same effects. And that's just Jonathan Edwards talking about exactly the same thing that the first followers of Jesus were experiencing in Acts 4. That's the fullness of the Spirit, when it becomes so real to you that it actually changes you. But, but notice at the end of his little journal entry there, he, he wasn't saying he always lived like that. He wasn't saying, you know, that every day was joy upon joy. He said that he had several of those encounters throughout his life. And so when you zoom out from the book of Acts, on the one hand, what we're shown is we should not count on our emotions and it shouldn't surprise us when our emotions aren't always caught up to the objective reality of where we stand with God because of what Jesus has done for us. But on the other hand, we should see what's available and we should desire to have those encounters with God. And that balance is really hard to find in churches because that balance is really hard to find in people. And what what you you tend to have is people who are either always chasing an emotional high or or people on the other end of the spectrum that try to reduce Christianity to this really cold, calculating, purely intellectual thing. And of course, people from both camps have a tendency to look down on each other. But the truth is, it's neither one of those. So thirdly, real Christianity is marked by experiencing God periodically. But the last idea I wanted to, to leave you with, number four, is that real Christianity is marked by exhibiting God generously. And the the last verse in this passage that we're looking at today, verse 32, it says, Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. And and so, so remember, right before this, in verse 31, we're told that these believers were filled with the Spirit, and they spoke God's message, and they did so with boldness. That's a Greek word that literally means fearless confidence how it's literally translated. And so what Luke is telling us is that right after these believers became fearless, the very next thing we read in, the, in this passage is that they started giving their money away like crazy. And there's a connection there. And what that means for us, what, what I'm convinced Acts is trying to get us to see here, and I would just ask you to, to, to really take a self inventory as I say this next phrase and ask yourself if this is not true of you, because I can tell you that that I, I wholeheartedly believe it is true of me. What this shows us is that one of the primary reasons that we are not more generous is because we're fearful. It's because we look to our money and our investments and our savings and our stuff to give us a kind of security and safety that only God can give us. And the more that we do that, the more, of course, if that's our source of security, then we can't let go of that. But what this passage also shows us is that when God becomes real to us, and all that God has done for us in Jesus becomes real to us, and the Holy Spirit of God causes us to be transformed by that, and we live out of that, what happens as God becomes more real to us, our money becomes less real to us. And we stop looking to it to make us safe and secure because we know that we have that in God in a way that nothing else can give that to us, and so we're free to give it away. And so lastly, one of the marks that you're a real, genuine Christian is that you become more and more generous as the years go by. Now, the, the last question that I want to answer, having given you those four ideas, is just where do these marks actually come from? Because it would be a grave mistake to look at these four ideas and say, well, let me just try really hard to conjure these things up in my life. So, so what I want to do kind of at the, at the conclusion of our time together, now I'm going to take my time in this, but I want to look again at verse 31, which says, when they had prayed... The place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to, to speak God's message with boldness. It, it's, uh, it's noteworthy that the, the, the descent and the manifestation of the presence of God in these believers' lives and Acts 4, it's noteworthy that, it, that an earthquake accompanied that. Because, because numerous times, or really all throughout the Old Testament, what we read is that when God's presence is made manifest, there's an earthquake. And that's meant to show us that, that, that when God comes down, what, what's happening is something of greater substance than reality is coming into contact with something that can't bear it. And so whatever God's presence and his manifest glory comes into contact with really has no choice but to be shaken apart. I've always thought about it this way. If you drop a bowling ball, On a glass table, the table shatters because the the, the weight and the substance and the reality of the bowling ball is greater than that of the glass table. And so the glass has no option but to give way, no option but to be shaken apart and to shatter. And so what scripture is trying to get us to understand when it tells us that the earth has a tendency to shake when God shows up, what scripture is trying to get us to understand is that when God comes down, he is of such reality. He is of such substance. He is of such glory and such greatness that nothing on this earth can bear it. That's why when God's manifest glory descended on Sinai, the mountain itself shook. And Moses told the children of Israel, don't even go near the base of this mountain. It's not safe for you. It's why Isaiah the prophet, when he stood before the manifest glory of God in the temple, the only thing that could come out of his mouth, he simply said, woe is me. For I am undone or I am ruined. And what he's literally saying is that he was actually being shaken apart in the presence of his creator. It's because of our sin and his glory that we simply cannot stand to be in his presence without being undone on a subatomic level. And so, what you're seeing here in Acts chapter 4 is that the presence of God comes down on these believers, and the place in which they were seated was shaken. That makes perfect sense given everything we've seen in scripture about God up until this moment. But the most surprising part of this story is that while the place that these believers were in was shaken, the believers themselves were not. And actually what Luke tells us here is that while this place was shaken, these believers became more unshakable than they had ever been in their entire lives. And so the question that Acts 4, 23 through 32 should leave us asking is how is it That the presence of God could descend on these believers in a way that Moses could not bear it, and Isaiah could not bear it, and the children of Israel could not bear it, and not even Mount Sinai could bear it, and yet these believers were more strengthened than they ever had been. And here's the answer while the worship team comes up, and I want to leave you with this. In Matthew chapter 27 and 28, there are two earthquakes. In Matthew 27, when Jesus died, scripture tells us that the earth shook, that Jesus hung on the cross and he called out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he he gave up his spirit and he breathed his last. And when he did, scripture tells us that blackness covered the skies and the earth shook and rocks split and the veil in the temple was torn top to bottom and tombs emptied as the earth literally gave way. And the reason that the earth shook then was because something was descending that was causing that earthquake. And what was happening in that moment was God was coming down in judgment on Jesus. That divine wrath and divine judgment was descending on the Son of God as he bore the sins of all of us, the sins of the world in his own body on that cross. And as God came down in, in judgment on him, it was not only the earth, but the Son of God himself that was literally shaken to pieces. But three days later on that first Easter morning, scripture tells us there was another earthquake and the stone was rolled away and the son of God breathed again. And that time it was not Jesus being shaken. It was death and the power that it once held over mankind. And so what Jesus says in effect to you through the gospel, Jesus says, I was shaken for you so that you could be unshakable in me. You know, I, I referenced the story of Job on the front end of this teaching and the reason that Job was able to get through all of his suffering clean to the other side despite all of his ranting and raving is because he held on to a truth It's one of the most famous verses in the book of Job. Job famously said, I know that my Redeemer lives. But we know better than Job. We know something that Job would have given anything to know. We know something that can carry us through the hardest times of our lives. Job know that his Redeemer lived, but we know that our Redeemer died. And because Jesus went through that for us, because Jesus experienced the wrath of God for us, because Jesus experienced what it was to be shaken for us, we can trust him right here and right now. And in him, we become unshakable. And that's my, that's my heart for all of us. That's my desire for all of us, that we would be a church that is unshakable because of what our God has done for us in Jesus. And if there's anything that the world needs right now, it's a church that is unshakable. We could be that church by grace through faith in Jesus. That's it, that's all, let me pray for us. Father God, I, I wanna thank you first and foremost for the finished work of Jesus, that in Jesus we have a savior that was shaken for us, that we might be unshakable in him. God, I know that, that, that for, for your people, messages like this can be incredibly convicting, as we hold up what we see in your word to what we don't see in our whole lives, in in our lives, where we see where we need to change, God. And for for every single one of your children right now, that you're revealing all the areas of of, of their life that needs to change, God, I'm just asking that you you would give us the ability to repent, that throughout our lives, we would surrender more and more of ourselves to you, that we would be people that exhibit more powerfully the fingerprints of our creator in our lives and the spirit of God in our lives. God, and lastly, I want to pray specifically for people listening to me right now who don't have a relationship with you. People who, in hearing the marks of real Christianity, realize that none of those marks are present in their lives because they do not have a life giving, transforming relationship with you because they've never surrendered to your Son, Jesus. And whoever that is, whoever that is listening to this right now, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that your light would shine so brightly in their eyes they could not ignore it any longer. And that they would surrender to the Savior who was willing to be shaken for them. That they might find life and life abundantly in the name of Jesus. It's in the name of your Son that we come before you with boldness and with confident expectation. Amen.